from what we understand, there's uh, 17 churches plus Alberta Bible College represented here, uh, as well as Impact Canada. Uh, Darlene is here from Toronto. Uh, they're, they're, uh, uh, in fact, Darlene, can you stand up? Darlene uh, is with Impact Canada. Some of you know Jim Toon. This is the organization Jim is associated with, and they are co-sponsors of this seminar. So thank you for that, and we're going to learn a little bit more about Impact Canada tomorrow. Uh, the Calgary Church of Christ are also uh, big sponsors of this. And uh, in just a moment, Kelly Carter is going to come up, and uh, he's going to welcome you from the church, and he's going to lead us in an opening word of prayer. Um, but before he does that, I just wanted to kind of get to know who you are and then tell, tell you all uh, some things that I have said about relational discipleship and why I believe in it and why I'm so grateful that Jim is here and that you're here to hear what uh, he has to say. So I'd like to start over here with our friends with, uh, who, who are here from Vancouver. So if I can have somebody from each group just stand up and introduce your group and uh, tell us about your church, uh, the church name, where you are, and anything you'd like to add. I'm glad to be here with my uh, group. My name is Roland Paraiso, and I'm the pastor of Peace International Christian Church. And I'm so glad that uh, our leaders are here with me, Arnie, um, Ed, Gilbert, and Caesar. We are a six-year-old congregation. It is an outreach of the Impact uh, Canada and the East 91st Christian Church and also the Christian Evangelistic Association. Thank you. And I'm going to, Kurt, we're going to go to you next. And we'll just work our way back. A representative from each group. My name is Kirk Heikendall. I'm the pastor of West Coast Christian Church. Had to think about it there. Uh, we are located in Surrey, B.C., and uh, this is my team. Um, I won't bother naming them, but uh, I'm the leader of this group here. Empty seats, so it's cool. Um, but anyhow, we are an Impact Canada church. Uh, they were our primary um, supporters, so we're really grateful to Impact. Yay, impact. Uh, so that's my story. Sticking to it. I'm Jason Bandura. work with the Glen Elm Church of Christ in Regina. I'm here with uh, Robin Wise and Wilf and Laura Olson, Rich and Sue Krogsgaard, Ed and Jonathan Sloka. Many of these are shepherding couples in our congregation. Is there someone else? I think that's us. Uh, some of us have had opportunity to be down at Post Falls with Jim and Real Life Ministries, and looking forward to more. Great. Wayne, you get to be the spokesperson. For Thank you, Bobby. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. There's, there's quite a few of us here from the Calgary Church of Christ, and uh, rather than me to just guess, there's my son Darren. and May. Everybody who's Calgary Church of Christ, just stand so we can see uh, who you are. I'm not going to try. I'm not going to tell everybody. Oh, yeah, there's two there from Journey. Three. From from uh, from Journey Church, which was a, a church plant. Oh, four. Oh, there. Yes, the Hildebrands are here too. Okay, that's enough of that. Anyway, Calgary Church of Christ. Uh, we're just over 100 years old. We're babes, and uh, <laughs> uh, we've defied the odds. Okay, uh, we've been uh, out down to see uh, uh, real life ministries. We've been through immersion one and two. Quite a few of us, and uh, we're looking forward uh, to continuation of what you started yesterday, Bobby. Thank you. I'm Lee Patmore. I'm with the Church of Christ in Lloydminster on the Alberta-Saskatchewan border. I'm here with my wife, Sabra, 
And this is our first uh, interaction with uh, Jim Putman and uh, Real Life Ministries, and we're looking forward to today and tomorrow. I'm Henry Crete, and I'm from Maple Ridge, uh, British Columbia, and I, I follow Jim around like a Grateful Dead fan. Wherever he goes, I'm, I'm like... <laughs> and I'm Charles McKnight, and this is my wife Lynn, and we're from Kelowna. We... Uh, we meet in our home. We have a house church at Spring Valley Church of Christ. Also, I have a small group meeting in Beaverdale, which is about 75 miles east of Cologne, and we go down there once a month, and it's growing, and we're excited about both our little groups, so, and we're happy to be here. <clears throat> Nobody in Red Deer wants to uh, admit it. <laughs> I'm Lowell, I'm Lowell Hodgson uh, from Red Deer, Ivor Christensen, Danny Mulrooney, and John Smith. And uh, I think this is our first exposure, and we're looking forward to the next two days as well. My name is Kevin Vance from Regina. I'm from the Glen Elm, or from the Northwest Church of Christ, and uh, I'm the only one from that church. And I'm currently on a kind of an unpaid sabbatical or unemployed, and. Uh, hoping to plant a church in the inner city of Regina starting 2011. So. My name is Derek King. I'm with the Nanaimo Church of Christ on Vancouver Island in British Columbia. I've been ordered by my elder Wayne Pekka here to speak to you. <laughs> now, we're both happy to be here, and we're looking forward to, to learn and, and see new things. We've got a lot of good things happening in our congregation that we're excited about, small groups and spiritual gifts and, and whatnot, but we're looking to add to what, what God is already doing in our group. Doug Kendig, one of the uh, three elders from the Salmon Arm Church of Christ in B.C. Uh, we're currently without an evangelist, so if anyone uh, knows someone, I'm here to do some headhunting, too. <laughs> I'm Wes Midget from Central Church of Christ in Lethbridge, and uh, we have Lila Reynolds and Jim Chapman are here uh, with us as well. And we haven't been to one of these before, but we're looking forward to it. Hi there, I'm Jim Cumlin from Coldstream Christian Church, and I'm uh, just really looking forward to the next couple of days. I've been involved in, in small group ministry for 20 years and still think we do uh, a mediocre job of, of discipling through them and using them, so I'm excited to learn how we can do that better. Hi, I'm Martin Hosier from Oak Park Church of Christ. This is John, Ken, and Richard. They're three of our life group leaders, and Steve McMillan was on the end there but he saw the microphone coming and pretended to have a phone call. I'm Stacy Sparshu from Journey Church, and as was mentioned, there's four of us here, but you'll see different faces in and out for the rest of the two days, so we'll be joined by a few more. My name is Michael Coughlin. I'm lead minister with Connections Christian Church. We're a network of house churches here in Calgary. Uh, So what you're doing, Jim, and what we're talking about this weekend is very much uh, the world that I live and swim in, and I'm excited to learn more about it. Uh, The last year uh, was my first year. There's a great divide between the academy and practical ministry, and so bridging that gap is not easy. I'm excited to see what uh, comes out of this uh, next few days. So who's up next?
I'm Travis Sass. I'm a um, missionary. Last five years in Brazil, we're in transition going to Ecuador, and we're sponsored by the Saskatoon Church of Christ, but I don't think there's anybody here today from there. So I'm the only one. Thank you. Let's give, give yourselves uh, an applause. Yeah, we're so glad you're all here. Uh, Kelly, why don't you be coming up? Kelly's going to lead us in an opening word of prayer, and we're going to jump right in. Uh, I think you all have the, does everybody have a notebook? Want to make sure you have a notebook? Uh, I'm going to give you just a little bit of background of why this is important to me. <clears throat> um, I'm a native uh, Calgarian, and uh, I've been living for the last uh, 16 years now in the Nashville, Tennessee area. And uh, <clears throat> some of you I know really well, like Kurt was part of the uh, boot camp that we did, was it four years ago? Uh, in terms of uh, training church planters. For the last seven years, uh, I've, uh, my, my main thing is 12 years ago, I planted a church just outside of uh, Nashville, uh, near the Harpeth River, called Harpeth Community Church. And then shortly thereafter, a guy named uh, Alan Dunbar actually connected me with some folks because I had recently completed my Doctor of Ministry uh, in Evangelism and Church Growth. And uh, so an organization called Stadia asked me to uh, train uh, church planters and provide them with coaches. And uh, in the process of doing that, um, I just have learned a whole lot about churches and myself. Um, and um, it was four years ago, a little bit over four years ago, it was my day off and I was at home praying. And uh, I, I just remember really clearly it was, uh, I was really praying that God would help me to be a better leader. And I got up from my prayer time, and it wasn't too long after that that my cell phone rang. And I didn't want to answer it, but I didn't recognize the number. I didn't know what 208 was, and curiosity got the best of me. And I answered it, and it was uh, Jim's dad, Bill Putman, inviting me to come out to a conference called a CARE conference. And uh, the more he described it, I thought, you know, we'll just do it. And it was like two weeks away. So uh, uh, we flew out to Idaho. Uh, I listened to Jim speak, and right away I thought, wow, I, I just believe exactly the way he does. And, uh, and then uh, I tried to have a little bit of an argument with him about a few things, and uh, he would win the arguments. <laughs> and uh, uh, I just right away um, became um, somebody who, who thinks a lot of Jim and how he thinks, and we have become very good friends. He's been a very good friend to me. And uh, so over the last four years, I've tried to, with every church planter that I can, uh, influence them to uh, this model of relational discipleship. In fact, Henry's here because uh, Henry came to a boot camp that we did with Real Life Ministries. And for myself personally, I just wanted to say to all of you, that uh, I've received a lot of education. I've been uh, coached by people like Bob Logan and Tom Rayner and Alan Hirsch. But the person that has helped me most to understand what Jesus wanted in terms of leading ministry is Jim Putman. And um, I'm just really glad that he's here and he's going to share these things with you. And I'm not going to say a lot more about that other than to turn our time over to Jim after Kelly welcomes you and leads us in a word of prayer. I do want to welcome you to Calgary. Thank you for coming. 
there's a lot of faces here. I've seen names on emails and things, but didn't know who you were. So it's, I'm grateful I have a chance to meet you and that we get to build some relationship together. This is a wonderful journey uh, that you're about to embark on. For those of you who have not had a chance to participate at all in what's happening with Real Life Ministries and perhaps you haven't gone to one of their immersion sessions or anything like our church has, you're going to be blessed in the next couple of days in, in having you know, almost like a ground floor uh, education in something that is going to greatly impact the church everywhere in North America and around the world. And, and I don't even know if you can appreciate, really, the privilege that you have. Like for us to have Jim here, uh, for him to take the time to do this for a couple of days for 60 people or so in Canada, for him to just say, oh, okay, I'm going to go bless 60 people in Canada and their churches, it, it really is a unique opportunity. And so if you're just thinking to yourself, that's another seminar, you're wrong. That would be a mistaken view. Because what you're, what you're having a chance to experience here is something which is exciting and unique in a way that, that you have not experienced this before. And God is about to shower down on you a rich blessing. And I'm grateful that we can all share in that. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we as your people want to have a greater impact in your world. Father, for a long time, there are many of us who have struggled and worked, especially in Western Canada. And Father, there are little tiny churches here represented by people who have given their whole lives to serving you in those contexts. And Father, there are times when we look and say, oh, what's really coming of this? Where's the fruit? We believe, Lord, that you're about to bless us. And we believe that something significant that can take place in a way that has not taken place before. God, we believe that you can transform not just lives, but churches as well. And we believe that you're about to transform churches right now before our very eyes. And that after two days of hearing and understanding, that we're going to go away different. That our churches are going to be greatly impacted because you, God, chose to use Jim in significant ways. And so I pray, God, that you would open our hearts, open our minds, help us to see and to understand, impact us through the presence of your Spirit. I pray that you would use Jim in a powerful way to help transform, to change, to uh, embolden and empower the church in Western Canada. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to see this take place among us. Thank you, Father, for all of those who've come And I I just pray rich blessings down on each church represented in every life. It's through Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, uh, thanks, guys. Uh, That was um, way more than I deserve. Uh, I appreciate you saying the things that you've said. Uh, Truthfully, unless the Holy Spirit uh, gets involved, nothing special is going to happen here. Right? Right? I mean, we've all been to seminars, we've all been educated, and uh, the truth is, what I really want to have happen is I want God to speak to me, I want God to speak through me and to speak to you, I want it to be from Him, Um, and uh, I know that if I say to Him, Lord, use this time and, you know, 
guide my thoughts, and you say to the Lord, Lord, speak to my heart right where I'm at. He knows our our name. He He knows the numbers of hairs on our head. He loves us. He cares for us, and he'll do just that. Would you all agree with that? Okay. You know, uh, it's an honor to be here. Um, for those of you who are unaware of, of uh, my journey and the, the journey of Real Life Ministries, we... Uh, I, I was a pastor's son who my dad my dad was actually a church planter and he would move every two years and he would plant a church and it would get to 150 or so and they'd call in another pastor and so then we'd move again. So uh, um, we moved around a lot. I uh, I didn't much like the church. I saw getting up early, setting up chairs, leaving late, taking down chairs uh, as a real problem. For one who likes to watch NFL football on Sunday morning, I, I, uh, my dad was always the real deal, but he um, he was too busy during that time of his life. He had five kids and and planting churches, and it was always it started with just us, seven of us, five kids, two adults, in every church, and and he was absolutely passionate about the Lord, but he didn't know really how to be a dad or a husband, uh, those kinds of things, and he was in process. I can say this about my dad. He was always sincere, and he always truly loved the Lord, and he always truly loved me. I, I saw enough of the church from the inside to know I didn't like it. Um, you know, pastors are bought and sold like so much cattle. If you don't like their preaching, you find them, find somewhere else for them to go and find somebody else to come in. Um, there are a lot of critiquers out there. I like this music. I like that music. I like this preaching. I don't like that sermon. You, you know, all the things that you deal with. Uh, you're expected to be at every hospital call, to do every funeral, to put aside your own family in many, uh, many ways for the, the church. And so I, growing up in that, I, I got to the place where my dad no longer mattered, meaning that uh, I wasn't going to listen to him. So I started to look around at all the other people that we were dealing with, and I, and I came to believe that these people don't believe what my dad believes. They talk one way on Sunday and talk a completely different way on Monday. Uh, they don't share their faith. They aren't willing to to move and plant a church. They aren't willing to do much of anything. They're not even willing to tithe, uh, which is why we were always so poor. Uh, you know, uh, And so you just, uh, I, I didn't like it. I, I also had some things because my parents both had to work because we were so poor. Uh, and you know, living in parsonages, people show up at all hours of the night because the church building wasn't open, and it was just always a pain in, pain for me growing up. But uh, some things uh, got into my family at a very young age that caused a lot of shame in my life, and shame in many of my sisters' lives, and uh, it was difficult. And so I started to drink and to party, and I was very athletic and. It was sports and partying and girls and all those things that go with that at a pretty young age. By the time I was about 20 years old, I was a full-blown alcoholic, blackouts, the whole bit. Uh, I had scholarships for three sports, chose to wrestle, and uh, was called in before the president of the school uh, that I was going to lose my scholarship. And the coach begged if I got help, you know, could I stay on the team. And so anyway, this long process of... Uh, dealing with drug and alcohol addiction. I also had a lot of doubts. I was that kid growing up that said, how do you know, you know that's true? And where did Cain's wife come from? 
And, you know, uh, I asked a lot of questions which irritated a lot of Christian uh, Sunday school teachers. And um, so if you'd asked me when I went to college what I was, I'd have told you I was a Christian because that's how I was brought up. But, but I had no real uh, faith. And they immediately in secular college began to dismantle what little faith I had, uh, whether it was uh, sociology class, God's responsible, Christianity's responsible for most of the horrible things that have happened in the last 2,000 years, to psychology, God is a crutch for those who are mentally weak, to biology where uh, God is a... Uh, there's a God gene that's developed in your mind through an evolutionary process so that there'd be morality. You know, it was just, it went on and on and on. Uh, and um, so by the time I'm 21 years old, I'm a full-blown alcoholic. I'm, I, if you were to ask me, I would have told you I was an evolutionist and, and an atheist. And um, so my dad would, you know, they got to give it to him. Every time I talked to him, he used to ask me, how are you doing with the Lord? And I used to lie a lot because I had spent all my money drinking and uh, he was sending me money for books. And I was using that money on drugs and alcohol and so I never wanted to tell him. But he caught me hungover one day and said, hey, um, you know, how are you doing with the Lord with a chipper little voice, you know? And I said, don't talk to me about God. I don't believe in God. You believe in God. That's good for you. But uh, there is no God and anyway, it started this dialogue between my father and I, and he challenged my my faith in evolution and started sending me books. And uh, one day I got, he kept bugging me, and I got really mad at him. And he, he told me I was a coward because I had taken a stance on things but wasn't willing to actually have it evaluated. And, and that wasn't something that you called me at that point, uh, no matter who you were. And... So anyway, we end up making a bet. I'll, I'll uh, become a Christian if I can prove Christianity is true, if he can prove it's true, or he has to leave the ministry if I can prove Christianity is not true. And so anyway, it's set, of course, this, motion, this uh, process in my life. I'm struggling with alcohol. I'm doing research uh, on Christianity. I graduated to be a history teacher. So I understood historiography. I understood books of antiquity criteria. I, I had, my dad sent me a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell to start with. And at first I thought, well, that's an interesting concept. Is the Bible true historically? Hmm. Uh, you don't just believe a book's true because it's old. What's the difference between fiction and nonfiction? And how would I know? And what are the criteria? And so I started to do research. I didn't much care for Josh McDowell's research because in my mind, even though he had been an, uh, a, a historian and, and a non-Christian, he was still a Christian now, therefore he was biased. And so we went through a, a process, or I did. And so at about the same time I came to the place where I actually believed that Christianity was true, I also believed that there's no way God could forgive me for what I had done and for my inability to quit drinking. I didn't really understand the gospel. I needed to quit drinking in order to receive Christ. And uh, I had it backwards, obviously. But my dad never quit praying for me and never quit calling and all that. And, and one day I gave my life to the Lord. At that time I said... I would, uh, okay, I would accept Jesus, but I would never accept his church. I would never be a part of the church. I had a, a foul taste in my mouth as a result of the church, both from what I had experienced uh, while growing up and, and what I experienced looking at Christians in the secular world where I lived. Uh, 
There are a lot of college students and people in town that I went to that called themselves Christians. And I used to, you know, be befuddled by them. Uh, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Yet you people can't get along with each other over anything, whether it's instruments or whether the communion table goes here or there or whether it's the color of the carpet or Calvinism versus Arminianism. I mean, I used to just look at the church and go, you've got to be kidding. Uh, I was a sports guy. To me, the church was a losing team with no hope of ever winning. So I said, all right, I'll accept Jesus, but I will not accept the church. Well, as I grew and my father discipled me, I came to the place where he, um, he convinced me that I could not say I love Jesus and hate his bride. And so I went, all right, uh, I'll go to church, but I'll never be a pastor. <laughs> and so I started to go to church. And my first experience at church... Uh, I'd been there for about four months, and the, the associate pastor's wife ran off with the chairman of the board of the elders. Within three months of being there, three of the four staff divorced as a result of immorality. And I went, this is exactly what I thought it was. And uh, it's no different in here than it is out there, except for that I felt no guilt out there. In here, they do the same things I did. They just feel guilty. What's the, what's the difference? I don't want to feel guilty. And I want to watch NFL football on Sunday morning. Uh, you have no idea how hard it is for me to be here when it's the first two Monday night football games. <laughs> All right. Just kidding. Kind of. Uh, the, uh, the, um, so anyway, uh, I, used to, I started going to church and I got bored. And I sit down, stand up, didn't really know anybody had struggled with alcoholism, didn't feel like I could, uh, and I was new out of alcoholism at that point, didn't feel like I could be open and honest with anybody at the church. I actually had to go to AA uh, to get help because you're not going to find much help, just usually judgment in the church. At least that was my perspective. At least in AA I could say, my name's Jim Putman and I'm an alcoholic. And they'd, they'd go, hi Jim! Everybody in the group, hi Jim. Anybody been to an AA meeting? Well, it's a great experience. Uh, it's what church should look more like. If you, to be honest with you, but uh, it was um, it was quite a, a deal. Uh, I decided, you know what, it's time for me to get out of the church thing. This isn't working out. I'm bored. There's nothing for me here. What what could I give to the church? I, I don't have anything to add, and I certainly don't want what I'm seeing here. And my dad called me one day and he said, Jim, people are like a pond or like a lake. If water comes into the lake and no water goes out, it swells up and drowns everything around it. He said, if water only goes out and no water comes in, it dries up. You have been, had water poured into you for a long time. You're swelling this and you're, you're flooding and you're going to kill everything around you. You need to start having water go out. It's time for you to get involved in ministry. And I'm like, well, what, what possible good could I give to the church? I mean, what am I going to teach the church? I mean, I mean, how to fight? They already got that one down. Uh, you know, I was a wrestler. What, what, what am I going to teach? Now they could really hurt each other if I taught them what I knew. And um, so at that time, the, the next week, I, uh, the senior pastor came up to me. It was just a church plan of about 120 people. He said, listen, we've got uh, uh, four kids in our church that we don't have a youth minister for. Would you start a small group? You're the closest one to their age. And I was shocked that he would even ask me to do that. 
you know, he didn't know much about me, but I knew a lot about me, and I couldn't believe they were asking me. But I thought, well, my dad just said I need to have water going out. I do understand kids, so maybe I'll do that. So anyway, the way I got into ministry was four kids one week, eight kids the next week, 20 kids the week after that. Pretty soon there's 150 kids, and I guess I'm a youth minister. And uh, uh, so that was my start into ministry. But then I told God I'd never be a church planner. And, of course, then 12 years ago, uh, after a very frustrating stint in a, in a church, very frustrating, um, the, the folks in the church, the older folks in the church, people who have been Christians for years, were questioning, who are these people that are coming to our church? And uh, rather than being excited that people were being saved, they were, it was a very frustrating experience. And I, basically I said, God, I, I'm only going to do this one more time, and then I'm out of here. And so I planted, uh, we, we, me and another friend of mine planted a church in North Idaho 12 years ago with, with uh, two couples. And uh, um, we said we're going to do just what the Bible says. We're going to look in the scripture, not just for our theology, but for our methodology. And from that little group of people, there's now 8,000 plus people in six other churches, church plants. And uh, God has done some amazing things. And we give him all the credit for it. He loves to use the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And uh, he's done some amazing things. But uh, I want to I start out today by saying a couple of things to you. Uh, I'm going to start out saying some things that maybe, that you, maybe you don't want to hear. And, and it's not, my, my intention is not to offend you. I hope you understand that. My intention is to get you to question some of the things that you may be doing and calling it a church. Um, now, listen, not to say that any of us have done uh, things on purpose. We were handed a box, and we, we try to live within that box. But at some point, we're responsible to take a look at that box and ask ourselves some questions about it. And uh, if you are doing things right, then you can handle being challenged, can't you? Some of us avoid challenge. I think it's okay to challenge and to be challenged and to talk through things because we're stronger after doing so. Does that make sense to you? So I don't know uh, Canada like I know America, uh, but I'm going to share with you my perspective, and then we're going to be able to hopefully talk about it, but... but I want you to hear me on this. My goal is only to um, to say to you that uh, God loves you, God loves his church, God loves lost people, and he wants the church to win. And, and I believe he's designed it so it can, it can if we do things his way. So um, I hope you hear my heart in this. I... I I, since I don't know any of you, I can't personally attack you, so don't take it personal, okay? But I'm going to make some generalizations based on the overall data, and then if that doesn't, uh, if that doesn't quite fit where you're at, fine. But I, I, I want you to just hear overall what I'm saying. There are pockets of people in every place that God's using, and it's amazing, and even in spite of what's happening, uh, the way we do things. But I just want to point out that uh, uh, I want to go through some things and, and really uh, cause you to question. That's my goal. So we'll see how it all turns out, okay? 
All right, if you turn to session one, page three, I want to read a verse to you. And if we are going to really be able to uh, even, if it's not going to be a waste of time for the next two days, we're going to have to agree on some concepts. You're going to have to agree with me. I'm going to have to agree with you. If we start with uh, wrong, uh, prep, uh, wrong um, statements of belief and wrong concepts, then we'll, we'll go like this and, and get further apart as we go. So uh, presuppositions is what I was looking for. Matthew 16, verse 17. You know this story. Jesus is um, with his disciples, and he's quite, causing quite a stir. And one night he asks his guys, who do people say that I am? Do you remember that? Give me some of the answers some of those folks gave. Elijah, John the Baptist, Jeremiah. Jesus, after hearing that, said, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter made the statement, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, well, that wasn't revealed to you by men. It was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. And he said, on this rock, meaning... The statement of faith he had just made. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. On that rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Isn't that what he said? Now, as I, uh, I'm uh, looking at that passage as a, as a sports guy, remember my dad said, there's sports all over in the Bible, Jim. Teach them what you know. You're a coach. You, know how to, you can give to the church the ability to lead and to teach about sports. And there's no sports in the Bible. Yes, there is. Wrestling is right in there. It is. And, you know, I had to go through it. It is. It is in there. And, and so is boxing and running. But hockey, not there. <laughs> Just kidding. Are you all right, Bobby? Okay, okay. Yeah. All right. A couple of concepts. Look at underneath that. It says the church is God's idea. Do you agree with that? As much as I hated the concept of church, and many people do, and want to jump, uh, you know, get out of it, and and do the God and me thing, me in the woods. That's my church sort of thing. The church is God's idea. Do you agree with that? All right. Secondly, we have an opponent. Speaks of it, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Don't we have an opponent? Isn't there something going on? First Timothy says that the world has been taken captive by the enemy, by the devil, to do his will. All right. Uh, thirdly, we're on the attack. In that to Greek, many of you will know this, it says, literally, the gates of hell will not prevail. Meaning, you never see the gates of anything moving forward. They're stationary. The gates of hell have the world surrounded. The church is to be the one on the attack. We were told to go into the world. Uh, where I live, there are forts everywhere. Where we, we used to, uh, with the Native Americans there, the Indians there, when we'd, we'd live out there and then they'd come and we'd run inside our fort and hide. And so many of the churches actually see themselves as forts in, in the midst of this dark world. That's not a biblical concept. We are the soldiers of light. We are the ones on the attack. We are the ones are, that are told to go. And the gates of hell are trying to hold us out. You see what I'm saying? So in the Greek of that, you, if you, as you dive into that, explore it, you'll see that the gates of hell, we're a crashing against them. They're not crashing against us. Notice he says the gates of hell cannot prevail, meaning that we are supposed to be a winning team. Would you agree with that? 
We're supposed to be winning. Well, what is winning? That's a good question. What is winning for the church? Uh, The way I see the church defining that nowadays is he who has the biggest show that gathers the most attendees or spectators, they win. And, And I want you to understand this. I don't care whether it's a little church or a huge church. Numbers by itself do not decide whether you're winning or losing. Uh, There are a lot of ways to get a big church. And there's a lot of ways to do it without God. Do you understand what I'm saying? So we're supposed to be winning. Winning is making disciples. We're told to go into the world and make converts. Is that what we're told to do? Is there a difference between a convert and a disciple? We restorationists concentrate on baptism. Um, That's our beginning point of the process. But we forget and teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Uh, We're called to make disciples, not converts. We don't measure success merely by how many baptisms we have. We measure success based on how many disciples who have been taught. All right? Let's talk about coaches, pastors for a minute. In my way of thinking, uh, God, uh, the church is God's team. We're supposed to win. And it, God even gave it coaches. Ephesians 4.11, God gave pastors, teachers, apostles, prophets, evangelists to do what? Equip or prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up. Now, I want you to understand Uh, most churches I know are being led by paid players rather than coaches. The people come to sit in the stands and watch the worship band play, the pastors play, and the way they they would say, well, no, I'm equipping, I'm, I'm preaching, I'm teaching to all these people. That's how I'm equipping. Well, equipping for works of service. See, a coach's job, when I went to uh, Oregon City to, to uh, be the, the head wrestling coach, where I'd always planned to be a wrestling coach, I just loved being in the schools and interacting with the public that way, even though I was a pastor. Uh, at Oregon City, they hadn't won a duel in 10 years when I got there. Was it a good team or a bad team? Come on, was it a good team or a bad team? It's bad. You know what, though? They had redefined... The term that we, they re- redefined winning to mean how many kids did we to, did we get out? It's really easy to redefine terms so that you can feel like you're winning when you're losing. We're all about sportsmanship. Well, yeah, you should be about sportsmanship too. As you kick the tail of whoever you're playing, <laughs> beat them down, help them back up, give them a little hug, then beat them down again. Sportsmanship's good, but you're supposed to win. All right. So in this passage. Um, uh, in this passage, we, ha- we have a, a, a coaches whose job is to equip the saints, to prepare them for works of service, to make disciples who can make disciples, rather than just gather a crowd of converts. And so as I'm, I'm going through this, all I'm doing is simplifying and de- defining some terms that we all uh, use, but we need to define them. And uh, because we can't be in alignment, we're not really the same team if we don't have use the same language, the same terms. 
And so here's what we're going to do. When we're going to look at God's church, I, I see here what Jesus said about his church. It's his idea. It's supposed to win. Um, as I look at that, I, I never thought of the church as a winning team before I was a Christian. And I certainly, uh, after looking at many of the churches across America, and that's where my experience lies, I don't know so much about Canada, I don't think that many of those, those coaches or players think they're a winning team. I think if they were honest, um, most churches in America, what is it, 2% of churches in the United States are, are 200 or more, 2%. In spite of the fact that they're in huge crowds, uh, huge communities, 2% are 200 or more. One half of 1% of churches in the United States are what are called mega churches. 90% of all churches in the United States are 90 or less in spite of the fact that there are non-Christians everywhere. So winning, making disciples, how are we doing? Uh, I want to evaluate the church in America and then in Canada for a minute. I want to evaluate the church in America then in Canada for a minute. How is the team doing? If the church is a team and it's God's team, how is it doing? Just like in wrestling, was it a good team or a bad team? Based on the score at the end of the day, it was either a good team or a bad team. When you haven't won a duel in 10 years, you're a bad team. When you're a uh, uh, you know, football player, coach and you're 2-11 and 11 or 2-14, and 14, are you a good team or a bad team? You're pretty bad. All right, so how's God's team doing? Here's uh, some of the statistics that you may be aware of in America. This is from a guy named George Barna. How many of you are aware of who George Barna is? He's a Christian pollster. Uh, he wrote a book called Revolution. He's written a lot of books, but he wrote a book called Revolution, which I hate. I absolutely hate the book. I agree with his statistics. His statistics are as accurate as you're going to get in the poll, but um, his conclusion is just craziness. Here's what he says. George Barna, chapter 4. Every human being was created by God primarily to know him and to serve him. All other activity is superfluous. But that being the case raises some tough questions. One of them is simple. If the local church is God's answer to our spiritual needs, then why are most churched Christians so spiritually immature and desperate? One of the greatest frustrations of my life has been the disconnection between what our research consistently shows about the church Christians and what the Bible calls us to be. Granted, we are sinful creatures and will never achieve perfection on this planet. Only when we are reunited with God in heaven will we experience a fully restored state. However, if the local church is comprised of people who have been transformed by the grace of God through our redemption in Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit, then their lives should be noticeably and compellingly different from the norm. Would you agree with that? That Christians ought to be different than the norm. All right. Well, what, do, what does his research tell him? First, eight out of every ten believers do not feel they have entered into the presence of God or experienced a connection with him during a Sunday morning worship service. Eight out of ten of the people that they polled. The typical church believer will die without leading a single person to a life-saving knowledge of and a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
I want you to think about that. Typical person. They just came out to Thomas Rayner, Southern Baptist, with Lifewind, or excuse me, Lifeway. Just came out with a statistic that said that um, there are 160 million people in America who are not Christian. They did a poll, a huge sampling. 80, and that's, by the way, that's a pretty loose terminology. That means another 160 million are. So how many is there really uh, in America? But uh, he just came out with a a big poll that they did. 81% of those who do not go to church said if they were asked by a Christian to go to church, they would. 81%. Think about that for a minute. You know what? When Thomas Rainer was doing his book on his new new study, you want to know the number one question question non-Christians were asking him? Number one question when they did the poll amongst non-Christians. If Christians believe Jesus is the only way, why don't they ask me about him? Do they not want me to go to heaven? Here's a big, big one. Only 9% of born-again believers have a biblical worldview. This is how they d- determined that. They asked eight simple questions of pastors first. They did a huge pool, uh, poll for pastors. Eight questions like, is the Bible the word of God? Is there absolute truth? Is there a real heaven and hell? Is Jesus the only way? I mean, basic questions of pastors. You know how many pastors, what the percentage of pastors who a- answered those questions were correctly? 51% of pastors in the U.S. answered the questions correctly. But here's the fascinating part. They then went to the church, the church is, where the pastor had answered the questions correctly. And they gave the same questions, the same questions to those people who went to that church. In other words, uh, you're, the, the pastor here teaches with a biblical worldview. That's great. He teaches with a, every week. He preaches sermons that have a biblical worldview. So let's say that we took the congregation in here and gave the same questions that the pastor was asked. They found that only one in seven of those who went to a church that, that where the pastor had a biblical worldview, the people in the seats had a biblical worldview. One in seven. Now I want you to think about that. He's preaching biblical worldview stuff. He's lecturing and teaching and talking, but the people in his seats do not have a biblical worldview. Church give, Christians give away an average of 3% of their income in a typical year and feel pleased at their sacrificial generosity. Guess what non-Christians give to charity in a typical year? 3%. Christians attend church 1.6 times a month at a weekend service of any kind. Fewer than one of every six church believers has a relationship with another believer through which accountability is provided. The most significant influence in American Christians' lives is not their pastor, it's not the Bible, it's the media. Josh McDowell Remember the guy that uh, had uh, written uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict wrote a book recently called The Last Christian Generation. And what he had done is he did a huge research poll on youth in America. 
And therefore, he found that he, you can kind of get a glimpse of what he, uh, uh, what he found when he called his book The Last Christian Generation. This is what he writes. You would probably not be surprised to learn that 85% of youth from Christian homes that attend public schools do not embrace a biblical worldview. But what of students in Christian schools? While these students scored slightly higher, only 6% higher, than their counterparts, uh, only 6% more embrace a biblical theistic worldview. It is clear that we have all but lost our young people to a godless culture. God is still important to me, they say, but I just believe some different things than you do. Here are the differences. This is youth group kids, by the way, in America, going to uh, churches. Only 63% or, uh, 63% don't believe Jesus is the son of the one true God. 58% believe all faiths teach equally valid truths. 51% don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. 65% don't believe there's a real devil. 68% don't believe the Holy Spirit is a real entity. When you look at the national average, there's about 386,000 churches in America. Only 14% of churches in America are growing. 14%. But only 2% are growing by what's called new conversion growth. 2%. That means the other 12% are growing by transfer growth. Do you know what that means? People are bouncing around from church to church to church, same 52 cards, just reshuffling the deck. Moving to a town, looking for the Church of Christ, going to the Church of Christ, so they grow. Now I want you to think about that. Some people go, well, some of these churches are having conversions. Yes, but listen to this. Based on Josh McDowell's study, George Barna's study, Thomas Rayner's study, Around 90% of all kids who are brought up in the church will leave the church between ages 18 to 24, most never to return. Nine out of ten will leave the church. Meanwhile, some people go, well, church plants, that's impressive, right? That's, that's, that's great. We've got a lot of church plants that we're doing. Well, you know, the sad thing for me is I work with a lot of church plants. And typically, these are people who are so frustrated with the church as I was that they've left the existing church to plant a new church. The problem is most of the people who go to that new church are people that left their existing churches as well. And how long is a church new? And listen... The sad part of it is that a lot of these existing churches are using the same tech, or these uh, uh, new churches are using the same techniques that they came from. They just think it'll work better because I'll be in charge. Meanwhile, the U.S. has the largest Buddhist temple, the largest Muslim training center, the eighth largest Hindu population, the largest Jewish population. 411 Americans are converted to Islam every 24 hours. 872 people are converted to Mormonism every 24 hours. But 2% of the churches in the United States are growing by new conversion growth. Well, let's look at the Canadian statistics because they must be better. In 1945, weekly church attendance was around 60% of the Canadian population. 
1950s, weekly church attendance actually went up to the 70th percentile. 1975, church attendance was just over 30%. 2000, 20%. Uh, 2006, 17%. Where 70% of Canadians were weekly attenders attending church in the 1950s. In 2007, 67% of the Canadians were attending church once a year. So I think you think about that for a minute. 70% used to be weekly attenders. Now, now, 67% of Canadians were attending church once a year. Almost a complete flip-flop. A 2008 Vancouver Sun poll determined that about 12% of Canadians are strict moralists, about 25% are laissez-faire moralists, and that about 83% approve of having a baby outside of marriage. Uh, Here's a good statistic for you. In 1990, 28% of all children born in the United States were born to unwed mothers. In 2010... 41% of all children in the United States are born to unwed mothers. 20 years. That's an American statistic, though. According to Outreach Canada, 42% of Canadian churches were under 75 in a weekly attendance. 32% were 75 to 150 in a weekly attendance. 21.4% were 151 to 350 in weekly attendance. And 3.8% were above 350 in weekly attendance. Despite the church attendance record in 2008, about 66% of Canadians identify themselves as Christians, 62% believe in forgiveness through Christ, 45% pray daily, 41% say they have a relationship with Christ. This means there is an openness to Christianity, even though church attendance figures point to to there being little real commitment or connection between personal faith in, in, in Canada and the visible church. According to Stats Canada, 40% of Canadians have a low degree of religiosity, 31% are moderately religious, 29% are highly religious, 4% in 1971, 7% in 1981, 12% in 1991, and 16% in 2001 of the population aged 15 and over report no religious affiliation, according to Stats. Now, as I look at the Canadian church, You know, I wonder where this is going. I want to go back for a minute. I want to go back for a minute to Jesus' statement. Do you remember when Jesus said, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? Do you remember where he said that? When I read these stats, and when I first started becoming familiar with church stats, all the way back in 1990, 1992 is when I started really diving in and going, how's the church doing? Because I knew how it was doing where I was at. There had to be some place that it was doing well. How's it doing overall? I remember reading that passage, and and here's what it brought to my mind. When I hear Jesus say, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, yet I see these statistics. I only have two possible conclusions. One, Jesus is a liar or ignorant because the gates of hell are prevailing against his church. 
2% of the churches in the U.S. 98% are not growing. And those kids who do give their life to the Lord in that church, 90% of those are going to leave the church never to return when they turn age 18. Jesus is a liar or he's ignorant. Or, by the way, I can't accept that, that first option. Or somehow the church in America is no longer his church. He'd never promised the gates of hell would not prevail against a church. He never promised the gates of hell were not going to prevail against a church. He promised the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. So then, if God designed the church to expand... If God put within the seed, so to speak, in our heart, the ability to grow and to produce fruit and to change our life and to make him known to the world and glorified by the way we live and act, and yet most Christians are going to die without ever sharing their faith, well, they're going to attend church. They've been attending church for years. But they have a a biblically illiterate view of what it looks like to be a Christian. They don't know the word and really don't care to. They would like to be tolerant and say all ways have equally valid truths and there are many ways to get to heaven and, and they can't tell, there is no devil, there is, the Holy Spirit's not a real entity. When you start going down this road, listen, God never said the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. Now, here's the reason I bring this up, because listen, until we really start taking a look at what's going on, we won't change. Until we really recognize there's a problem, we won't do anything about it. We'll just keep doing the same old thing. I think there, that, that is definitely a part of it, but I, I want to say this. I want to tell you just a little story that you're probably all familiar with. Do you guys remember the story of Josiah in the Old Testament? It's a great story. Josiah, Israel had gone up and down. Judah had gone up and down in their walk with God. They, they would walk away from him and they would cry out when they were attacked or conquered and then then they would, God would respond and he would send prophets and usually they wouldn't listen, but sometimes they would. And then God, uh, God would bring a, a, a godly king into the mix. And Well, Josiah's grandfather and father were pretty wicked and Israel was in a huge mess. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, but they didn't let him reign until he was 18. And when he finally started to reign, actually he's 26 years old and he's going, you know what, I've inherited this thing. And, and they had a religious system. They had Asherah poles on every high place, right? 
They, they had a kind of a mixture religion, a little bit of Asherah, a little bit of Moloch, a little bit of Baal, a little bit of Jehovah. The temple was right there. So one day, Josiah, for whatever reason, decided, you know what, we need to clean up the temple. I mean, this is my country, I'm the king, the place is a wreck, I'm sending some people in there, and, and, and they're going to start cleaning the place up. And, and here's what happened. When one of the guys got in there and started to clean, he discovered the book of the law. They had actually lost the book of the law. Oh, they had a religion. But they weren't doing anything according to the book of the law. In fact, the guy opened up the book of the law and he went, Oh my goodness. And he immediately ran it to Josiah. And he read it to Josiah. And when Josiah heard the book of the law, he took a look at what he had, the country he lived in, the high places, the mixture, the kind of semi-Jehovah following, and the and Yahweh following, and the semi-Moloch and Asher and Baal. And he, and he, and he tore his robe. And he went and said, Here's some, you guys start praying right now and find me a prophet. i gotta, I got to find out what God says about this. So they looked all over for a prophet and they found a prophetess. And they, and they went to the prophetess and, 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 and when Josiah went in and he said, Listen, we need to know what God says. If we make changes in this country... Is he going to forgive us? What's he going to do? And so the prophetess, if you read the story, the prophetess goes and talks to God and comes back and says, God saw you when you heard the book of the law and you tore your robe. He was going to destroy you in your generation. But because you've torn your, torn your robe, it will not happen in your generation. Some things that are really interesting to me on that. In other words, Josiah inherited a box. He's just a young man and he inherited a religion and it made everybody happy. I mean, come on. Yeah, there was Asher poles over there, but everybody got to do what they wanted and the country was doing okay at that time, you know, and it was all good. And he inherited a box and he took, and when he read the, the, the book, of the law, he read the Old Testament scripture, he took the box that he had been given and he compared it to the Word of God. And he went, Oh my goodness. I think every generation is responsible to take a look at the box that they were given and compare it to the Word of God. I don't care what your, uh, you know, the people before did. They were responsible for their time and their slice in history. And maybe they jacked it up and maybe they didn't. But when you are a leader and God has put in your care His body, your job is to take a look at the box that you were given and compare it to Scripture. When he saw the box that he he had been given, and really, I mean, he had lived in it, but he wasn't responsible for it, but he was about to pay for it nonetheless. God said, I was going to destroy you in your generation. You might go, well, wait a minute. I mean, I didn't know. Well, you got the Word of God right there. You found it. Now you know. God was going to make them pay anyway. Josiah took a look at the box, and he didn't go back and have a vote of the congregation, of the, of the people. Do we get rid of astral poles or not? I mean, this is what God said to me. Do we get rid of them or not? Is that what he did? No. He understood that he was responsible to God. 
And he made the changes that were necessary. He reformed Israel. He made the changes. Here's what I want to say to you about that. The Bible says this, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. Doesn't it say that? What does it mean to build the house? Well, you've got to have uh, God be your architect. You've got to have God be your strength. You've got to have God be involved in the making of the house because you can work real hard, but without God's blessing, you're not going to be It's not going to be what it ought to be. So here's what I'm saying to you. It's obvious. You guys have all heard this. If you keep doing what you've always done, you're going to keep getting what you've always gotten. And we can say, well, you know what? It's our culture. Our culture is too tough. Our culture is too rough. I live in what's called the devil's corner. 3% of our area is involved in church. There's a higher percentage in Africa than there is where I live. I believe this. God designed the church to win. He knows how he made people. He knows how, he, uh, he knows how to build a church that's effective and God's church wins, both in the design and in the blessing that comes with people who follow the design. And so here's what I want to say to you. It's our job to examine what we've been given and not say, well, our people won't be happy. Or our people are used to this or that. Or that won't work in Canada or Mexico or China or Washington or Tennessee. Our our goal is to say, what does the word say to do? Because it's God who causes the church to grow. And he causes it to grow when he blesses it because he approves. So why is this all happening? Well, let me say this. Here's some possible answers, and I'm just going to close this session. Here's some possible answers. First, uh, the reason the church is the way it is is because, number one, I believe the Bible is no longer the guide for many churches' faith and practice. Exactly what you were saying. It's no longer the guide. And, and I just want to say something to you. A lot of people go, well, if we preach Jesus and, 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 the, and the doctrine, you know, it's God's doctrine and, and, you know, God's people equal God's power and God's change in the community. I would add something. It's God's uh, word, his doctrine, his truth. It's God's people using God's methodologies equals God's power in a community. You know, the church has kind of hit new, the new age. There are many ways to have a church. Oh, we all believe in Jesus. He's the one true uh, way to, to heaven and the Bible's the word of God. But when it comes to, to methodology, we can use whatever methodology we want for the church and get away with it. No. God even has directions for the methodology of a church. We'll come back to that later. We've redefined words. Kept the same words, changed the meaning. The Bible is no longer... 
Um, you know, I was talking to Bobby today. He said, you know, in churches, I guess, in Canada, you can, you can say that homosexuality is sin, but you can't say it out there on the street. Well, I pray for you that you'll have the courage to say it where you need to say it. Not to, not to uh, you know, make a point because you want to cause a ruckus, but I, I'm just telling you, um, God's word is God's word. It says what it says. And you, I pray you have the courage to go to jail for that point if need be. God's word is God's word. The Bible says that uh, it's possible... Some of this is happening because we're in the end times. The Bible says that in the end times, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of pleasure, lovers of money. They won't, want, they won't put up with sound doctrine. They will, they'll bring around themselves people to tell them what they want to hear. That's probably part of it as well. Thirdly, some pastors have lost their biblical understanding of their purpose. Again, they think they are the paid showman. And their job is to gather a crowd. Fourth, some don't understand what they're shooting for. They don't understand what a disciple is. They, they misdefine discipleship to mean a disciple is one who knows right doctrine. Well, it's obvious that we're not even getting that done. But discipleship is so much more than knowing specific Bible trivia and truths. Discipleship affects the head, what you know, and who your authority is. It affects your heart, transformation of the character, and it affects your hands. A willingness to serve God and to be a part of His mission. When He says to equip the, 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 the people for works of service, it means that we don't just inform them that they ought to serve, but that we show them how to serve. Not just telling dads you should disciple your own children, but these people don't know how. They weren't taught to disciple. They weren't discipled themselves. They need people to be in relationship with them, to show them and to walk with them, and to model for them what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. When we become about a show you attend instead of relationships, we have lost the means for discipleship. Jesus, the great disciple maker, had 12 disciples. Because when you look at what is entailed in discipleship, it has to be relational. You cannot shepherd thousands of people. You cannot train thousands of people at once. You cannot hold thousands of people accountable. You cannot be authentic with thousands of people. You cannot confess your sins to thousands of people. You can, Jesus modeled and shared with these people what it looks like to make disciples, and we try to do it in mass numbers, and it does not work. We've forgotten the biblical methodology. You know, here, here's the deal, folks. I believe that people could see Jesus for who he truly is. I agree, some would hate him anyway. But there are a lot of people who hate him that wouldn't if they could see him for who he truly is. Our job is to make disciples. The way we are currently doing church in America, and it sounds like in Canada, isn't working. Why isn't it working? Is it because you're not trying hard enough? No, I don't buy that. I know pastors. I know how hard they try. Maybe it's because the methodologies, the box that we've been handed, 
isn't working and it's time to explore some other boxes. Primarily, it's time to go back to Jesus' way of making disciples because his way will work in any culture in any time. By the way, in any age. All right. That was depressing. I look forward to diving into some of the solutions instead of just pointing out the problem. But if you don't acknowledge the problem, uh, you know, if you don't think it's broken, you'll never try to fix it. So I want to ask you guys some questions for a minute. In your church, in your church, how many people have accepted Christ as their Lord and their Savior? They're learning about who He is doctrinally, but they're also transforming spiritually. They're being conformed into the likeness of Christ. And how many of the people in your church are now Moving to the growth stage where they are sharing their faith with others and they're making disciples of others and they don't need you. Oh, they like you and they want to be a part of what you're doing because they're a part of the body. But they don't need you. Jesus told us to teach reliable men who will be able to teach others. How? Listen, the goal of the church is not to gather a crowd, it's to release an army. They, go to, they live in every neighborhood They go to work in every place. They go to every school. If you were to release people who were absolutely committed to following Christ and were changed at the character level, they loved God and loved others, and they they understood their giftings and and they had a desire to serve God and knew how to serve God, if you released an army of 10 people in your town, how long would that group just be 10 people? The fastest growing church in history 2,000 years ago didn't have a radio. They didn't have a television. They didn't have email, Twitter. They didn't have a big building. They didn't have megaphones and speakers. What they did have was a methodology for making disciples that knew how to make disciples. And those people went to Antioch, Corinth. They went everywhere. And within 60 years, Paul could say, the whole world has come to hear about Jesus Christ. His way works. All right, let's take a a 10-minute break.